Sorry about my phone beeping. My watch broke. Um, I forgot to mute it. My watch broke like a week or two, a couple of weeks ago, and so I've got to carry my phone around with me, and I haven't ever forgotten to mute it until today, which is always funny because I always thought that that was, it's always funniest when someone's phone rings in the church and it's the pastors. Um, that always looks, looks the worst. Actually, when, um, when people, I've, I've often thought like, evilly in the back of my head when other people preach here. I was going to call them in the middle of the service just to see if they, if they had their phone on mute. I haven't ever done it, but, um, but now I've given you all the chance to see if my phone's ever muted so you can call me during, during service. I'll be like, why are you calling me? Um, but nevertheless, maybe he's got a question. Um, so last time we, we talked about Calvin, um, and we're going to continue talking about Calvin today. Um, and one of the things that we really wanted to... Um, to think about over the course of last week, and we're, we're going to focus on today, is um, the, one of the major distinctions, and I think um, at, at the bottom level, this is the real distinction that we're going to have with Calvin. So again, in the 16th century, um, what Calvin became known for was not what he was known for then. Um, this was, his institutes were not seen as um, really promoting predestination and limited atonement above everything else, and that uh, they were the highlights of the book. Um, all of it was pretty standard Protestant thought. It was very clear, very well done. I'm not trying to say that it was a, a meek and meager work. It was a tremendous work, um, but none of it was seen in, in a certain sense to be groundbreaking and that it was innovative or anything like that, the way that some people uh, remember Calvin today is not the way that he was thought of back then. The place where we would would start to veer the most off from him is going to be ecclesiology, and that starts with, with baptism. And when we talked about him last week, um, and we had a, some chance to talk about uh, this particular issue, but we're going to take a lot more time today, was um, the way in which he conceives of baptism and circumcision being related to one another um, poses a great threat for Baptist thought. So, uh, we're not going to take on all of his arguments, um, but the rest of them are very, very weak compared to this argument. And this is the main, like, if you're going to give percentages to it, this is well over half of his argument for pedo-baptism. He's got 30 different sections of the chapter on pedo-baptism, and the vast majority of them, the, the major emphasis lands here. And it's his insistence that both baptism and circumcision, although differing in their signs, symbolize the exact same reality. So while circumcision is not baptism, like we're doing different things, you know, where baptism it looks different, it, 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 it is different than circumcision in what it does, but the background symbols that it's trying to give to us, what it's trying to tell us is exactly the same. And if you remember me reading, and I can go back and read the passages that we read last week, um, I'm not, I'm not uh, drawing that out of what Calvin says. Calvin's really explicit in more than one area. He says it two or three times in that chapter. Uh, this, these are exactly the same. They correspond to one another precisely. They are exactly the same. The only difference is one is circumcision, the other is baptism. What they're symbolizing is precisely the same. Um, and so... As we, as we go into that, let me ask you, if you've, had, uh, if you've given it any thought, you obviously had ch a chance to think about it, but um, for numerous reasons that, that might not have been on your radar this week to, 
think of again. Um, did anyone give that more thought this week? And um, did you come up with a reason, any other reasons why we might want to say that that is a false way of looking at these things? Why, why would Baptists, what are arguments that Baptists could use that would say circumcision and baptism are not actually pointing at the same reality? It's okay if you don't have anything, but if you do, I would like to hear it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. was related to Jewish people, but he was not circumcised. Mom was a Jew, dad was Gentile, and Paul circumcised him, which has led some people to think that Paul was inconsistent on this. We can get to that and talk about why he's not inconsistent on this, but Paul was very clear that Gentiles cannot be circumcised. If they are circumcised, then they've, they've gone down a wrong path. Jewish people, Paul had no problem with accepting circumcision. Gentile people, he, he did. So go ahead with your... Um, Calvin, um, I don't know that he ever worked at doing that. I think that he would simply say this, the signs just changed. By the providence of God, we know that circumcision was the sign in the Old Testament of belonging to Abraham's covenant. In the New Testament, it is baptism, and the signs just changed. So whether or not you're circumcised, which becomes now a cultural marker of belonging to the Jews... Which I, I don't know where Calvin sits on that because there are some people who, who I think misinterpret what Paul says about circumcision in the book of Galatians, for instance. But um, I think what, what Calvin would say is even if you're circumcised, you still need to be baptized. That's still the marker of faithfulness in Christ. So the, the symbols have just changed. They're just different now. They don't mean, they mean the same thing, but God, for whatever reason and his purposes, changed the symbol argues in Galatians, at least that faith in Jesus is pointing back not to searched everywhere in Calvin, <clears throat> but I haven't found in Calvin an explanation as to why God did that. So I don't know what Calvin believes is the reason for the changing of the signs. Washings in the Old Testament. You all of the symbolisms there, you could have just done that in the Old Testament, but that's not what they did in the Old Testament. So, um, especially because they sprinkled, so it would have been very simple for them to do that. But nevertheless, he, he just argues, he doesn't, he doesn't say why, he just says, we know from Scripture, we know that it's changed. And I think his argument is, Scripture doesn't tell us why it's changed, and that's kind of true. We'll get to, we'll, I think we'll question him on that a little bit, but... 
good, good. Anyone else? Thoughts? Yes, Randy. Yeah, so the, the question that I think still stands, though, um, can, I think, I think we would like to nuance Calvin's statement and understand that he doesn't necessarily mean that they, they're the same in all their respects, but the idea is that they represent both a belonging to the people of God and a mortification of sin. Right, right, right. So um, I, I agree. And, and I th- what I think is that he would say, well, obviously there are some differences on, on certain levels, but the, the deepest, most real significance of them is that they are, the reality is they're pointing at different things. Now, um, clearly, there are, the baptism is more inclusive than circumcision is. But I, I think that that for Calvin, if, as you talk about like the surface level of what they're actually doing down to what they're symbolizing at their core, what he's getting at is just, there, there might be differences as you dig down, but once you get to the core, they're symbolizing the same thing. I, I'm going to argue today that that's just not even true. I think that we can make too much of a difference between circumcision and baptism, um, but I think that there's enough biblical warrant for us to see that they're different. But I agree with that, that at some level he's being sloppy with his language there uh, just on the face of it because women are included and and it's not just circumcision for men which is clearly what it was in the old, old covenant Sharon he would he, yeah so he would say that that is precisely the same thing that is is thought of in circumcision. So he, he talks about the fact that mortification of sin, death to sin, is found in, in, right, and he, he would agree with that, and he would say, but they're symbolizing the same thing. Now, in circumcision, the problem is that, again, I, I'm going to agree with uh, part of what Calvin said. So part of what he is saying, and he didn't argue this, so one of the things that he said is, um, as we're going to read through Genesis 17, Genesis 17 clearly connects God with his people through the act of circumcision, right? And one of the things that, he made this huge leap, he said, so to be with God's, to be with God means that you have to be forgiven for your sin, right? He just says that, but he doesn't say anywhere that circumcision is related to those things. He just kind of throws it out there. I think that that's true, but I think that we've got a better way of getting there than what he wants. So, Yes, it is death, burial, and resurrection in Jesus. One, they didn't do immersion because they did babies. So that was not, while it was part and parcel of baptism, that was not, I don't think, the, the main thing that their sprinkling signified, a cleansing from sin, which is where he's getting mortification. It's not death, burial, and resurrection. I think that we are much heavier on that because we, we like to, you dip, I dip, we all dip, so... Mm. Our, our children were done, 
confessional. It's right there. Mm. You're right. Thank you. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's, he's, um, people think of Calvin as fairly level-headed and reasonable, but he, he's throwing around all kinds of language. It's, and I think that he does this against papists, uh, as they would call them, uh, Roman Catholics, but he, he certainly does it against, he calls them stupid. Uh, he, he, is, he is throwing names at them from all over the place. Um, and so clearly one of the things that they would do, that he would say, is that they are, re- they are disallowing so that one of the proofs that he uses is Jesus says, let the little children come to me. And he says, you're not doing that. If you don't, if you don't baptize your kids, you're keeping them from the Lord. And he's very strong on it. Very, very strong on it. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And Jesus didn't, I mean, the question is, what, what is, what is baptism symbolizing? And I think that this is also something that Presbyterians get wrong. Because again, what we heard from Luther, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Anglicans, Pado-Baptists, what you heard from Luther was a common argument that one of the reasons why we baptize kids is to show the freedom of grace. That they can't do anything to get it. And, and therefore, not even faith is something that they do on their own, but it's a gift of God. Well, okay, that's true, but that isn't what baptism is meant to symbolize at all. Like, there, you find that nowhere in Scripture. That is nothing but the invention of somebody who's trying to do... And I'm, I'm good with theology, inventing stuff in order to make sense of stuff. Um, but that, that is unfounded in Scripture. So, um, what, what we want to do then is go to um, the Old Testament, and I, I want to point you to the covenant of circumcision. We're going to read Genesis 17 together. And one of the reasons why I do this is because I think that this is going to be um, the most helpful way for us to see what circumcision is doing and how it is different than what baptism is uh, and how it's similar. Um, and they, they, Calvin is not wholly off his rocker. Okay, so there are reasons why Pado-Baptists believe what they believed, um, and they're not like... 180 degrees from truth. The problem is being, being, you know, three degrees away from the truth here has led them to this error. Um, I think that we're going to find that he, he says a lot of good things, but um, on the main, he is wrong because of the way in which uh, basically he doesn't understand how time is working. Um, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I, I'm, I'm like, that sounds pejorative. I'm not trying to be rude to him. Um, he's dead, so he doesn't care. He, he knows the truth of what I'm saying now um, as he stands before the Lord. Uh, so um, I'm jo- joking. Um, actually, I'm not. I, I truly do believe that, but uh, that's kind of a rude thing to say. Um, so let's go uh, to Genesis, and let me, we'll read Genesis 17 in a second, but before we get there, let me talk about a couple of things before we do get there. Genesis 12, 15, and 17 contain three distinct covenants. Now, only in Genesis 15 and 17 do we have the word covenant used. When we open up to Genesis 12, we find the, the, the blessings of God upon Abraham and him saying, I will make you a blessing. I will bless your, your 
family, I will make you into many nations, and I will bless the world through you. And I think that that is the most comprehensive, everything in the New Testament points back to that particular covenant. So Galatians is saying, again, the faith that we have in Jesus is to include us in that blessing. So that is the way the Gentiles, through Jesus, are connected back to that blessing. The blessing of Abraham, the undoing of the curse, this is what Genesis 12 is pointing at. You go to Genesis 15, and we have another covenant. And so Abraham asks, how am I supposed to know that my offspring are going to inherit the land? And God says, well, get a goat, get a heifer, and get a, a ram, get a turtle dove, and get a pigeon. You're going to cut the, the major animals in half. I'm going to pass through them in a, in a symbolism of the Exodus, which we will get to in time. There's a symbol, symbolism of Exodus there. But the idea is God is making a covenant with him saying, I promise you, your offspring will get the land. Okay? Now, at the very first we have to admit that that particular covenant, for a couple of different reasons, cannot be exactly the same as the covenant that God makes in Genesis 12. And by the way, while Genesis 12 doesn't have the word covenant used of it, the New Testament talks about Genesis 12 and the promises of God like it's a covenant. So this is the way that Paul talks about it. It's the way the book of Acts, I think um, Peter has a sermon where he talks about the covenant of Abraham. Um, this is the way in which we should think of it. It's a covenant those two covenants, if they, were a, if they were a Venn diagram, right, so you've got the overlapping circles, they are not the same circle. So the covenant in Genesis 15 is clearly restrictive of the broader covenant of Genesis 12. And what I think is going on is God is telling him, I will indeed be, be doing this thing. I will give your descendants the land, but that giving of the land cannot possibly be equated with God overturning the entirety of the curse. Um, First, there'd be no reason for God to make a separate covenant that is precisely the same as the first covenant that he's already made. God doesn't need to promise things twice. He's God. Um, and secondly, uh, it, it's, it's very limited. He's not, he's not talking about overturning the curse. He's literally just talking in Genesis 15 about giving the offspring of Abraham the land of Canaan. He's specific, the land of Canaan, not the entirety of the world. So I think that they're smaller. In other words, they're not coterminous. They don't cover the same ground. When we come up to Genesis 17 we get kind of the precise same thing. Um, so let's read through. Uh, we're going to read the whole chapter. I'll read it fairly quickly. Um, so uh, we're, we're short on time. I don't want to spend too much time reading it with great affect, but we will read it very quickly. And then I want to talk um, just pretty quickly about what's actually happening in this. So Genesis 17, uh, beginning in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, the land, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And, Ab and God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall circumcise in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or, brought, 
or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished taking, talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in his house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. All right. So let's talk uh, as we go through this. First and foremost, um, God's making promises to him. And one of the things that God starts out with is this name change. So he was born Abram, which is exalted father, um, which is a weird thing to name your kid. But nevertheless, his, his name is exalted father. And God says, I'm going to change it to Abraham, father of many nations. Um, there's, there's no doubt in my mind that that name change is connected with what's about to happen. Okay, so he changes his name to father of many nations, but then the promise comes back that my covenant with you is that I'm going to be a God to your people. Your offspring will be my people, and I will be their God. Okay, so there's this, there's this idea of God attaching himself to the offspring of Abraham. Now, I think that there's a reason for that. Immediately after that, he talks about giving them the land of Canaan, and he is already in chapter 15, which certainly any connection to Abraham's children would make Abraham think of, God has already promised to send them down into Egypt. So with this name change, I think that Abraham probably is thinking along the lines of, well, what does this name change actually mean? So if I'm going to be the father of many nations, does that mean that my offspring won't be particular to me? Like, I'm going to go down to Egypt. They're going to go to Egypt. They're going to come back to Canaan. Uh, are they going to assimilate the Egyptians? What, what's going to happen with that? Are they going to get the land in Egypt? Like, can God change his mind on this? And I, I think that what, what God is saying is, I'm changing your name, but you need to understand that I'm still going to be particularly the God of your people. And, and that means protection for him, as we're going to see. I think it certainly means protection for Abraham and his offspring. It means that he will be victorious for them, both over Egypt and the people in Canaan, because he's saying, I'm going to give you the land in Canaan. So it shows that God is with him. He will have victory. He will have protection over them. 
So at the very first, I think it signifies something of protection, physical protection. Um, I think that that's sort of built into the promise. And we're going to see why that these, the two promises are combined into one, because I think that there's something else that circumcision is symbolizing as well. After he promises and I think implies that there's going to be physical protection for the people of God, that doesn't mean that God is always going to give them victory. So he will, for their own good, allow them defeat at times. Um, and he will even exile them at times, but he won't ever stop protecting. Even in exile, what does he do? He's with them in Babylon. He takes care of them. He brings them back. He is always a God over them. He's always protecting them. He's always keeping them. They will never be disintegrated off the face of the earth. However, there's something else that happens. Not only is Abraham's name changed, but after the promise of circumcision is given, he then changes Sarah's name. He changes it from Sarai to Sarah and says the same thing of her. She is going to be the mother of kings. Okay? And in that promise, he says, by the way, you're going to have a boy who's going to be born to you. And he laughs and God names his name Isaac. I, I love the whole, um, not just because my son's named Isaac, but I love the whole like laughing. And I think that God enjoys it. So I, I think that there's a part of God that says, I know that you find this ridiculous. And this is part of why he allowed, if, if he really fact that both Sarah and Abraham laugh, I think he wouldn't have named him Isaac. I think the whole purpose of naming him Isaac is this is how miraculous our God is. It, it's, it's, it's funny how God works at times. And I think that God understands that. So he names him Isaac. But there's this really important part of, of Abram's, Abraham at this time's realization. First he laughs, and then he says this important thing in verse 18. Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. That is, that Ishmael might be before your face. There is something of presence built into that command. Can't Ishmael live before you? Can't Ishmael have your presence as well? Abraham understands immediately that while God is commanding him to circumcise all of his children and even the people who are brought into his house, that this promise made to Sarah means something particular for Ishmael. And he immediately recognizes that this means Ishmael is not going to be the same as Isaac. Whatever this other boy is going to be, Ishmael's on the outside of something. And even though Abraham turns around and circumcises Ishmael, which, by the way, the text goes out of its way to point out a couple of times as though it was, like, flabbergasting. He circumcised Ishmael. There's something that circumcision is meant to symbolize that doesn't quite attach itself to Ishmael. So while protection goes with Ishmael, after all, he says, you know, I have listened to you. I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him. He shall father 12 princes. I will make him into a great nation. I will establish, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac. So there is covenantal protection over Ishmael. But there's something missing from Ishmael as well. Something that Abraham quite clearly recognizes as missing from Ishmael as well that doesn't attach to him. Now, and notice the strong answer of God. Abraham says, can't he live before you? And God just flat out says, no, no, he cannot live before me. He doesn't say, you don't understand what I'm saying. He, he makes it sound like, Abraham, you know exactly what I'm saying. And the answer is that rejection of Ishmael. He will not, even though he receives circumcision, he is not in the covenant, okay? So very strange. Now, turning to the New Testament really quick, we'll come back to kind of ferret out what that means in just a second. Let's, let's think through, um, I want to think through three passages in the New Testament and what they imply about the role of circumcision 
and um, how Calvin is wrong. And the first one, as we talked about last week, is the entirety of the book of Galatians um, for different reasons. So again, it seems like if Calvin was right, the easy answer that Paul would give would be chillax, we just baptize now, right? Um, And the whole thing could have been avoided because Jews were being baptized, Gentiles were being baptized. He could have just said, the symbols have changed, but the reality is the same. I know you're worried about that, Same, same thing, but he doesn't do that. But what's really interesting about the book of Galatians, something that scholars... Um, as, as I have read a decent amount of scholarship in the book of Galatians, um, are very perplexed about, and they seem at times unaware of, is that Paul's main problem is the, the issue of circumcision. So in the second chapter, when he's doing this autobiographical account, when he's talking about taking Titus with him before the three pillars, when he's talking about standing up to Peter in, in Antioch, the issue seems to be food a little bit, but mostly circumcision. So in that chapter, in chapter two, circumcision is mentioned five times. By the time you get to chapter three, where Paul's main scriptural argument starts, okay, so he's, he's just kind of laying the groundwork in chapter two. He's not arguing for anything. When he actually turns to arguing in chapters three and four, what does he argue against? Does anybody have a, an idea? He's not arguing against circumcision, He's arguing against the law. He never even mentions circumcision in chapters three or four. Even all the way up through the ending, the, the chapter divisions are bad. 5.1 is really the end of Paul's argument in the book of Galatians. Through 5.1, from chap- the beginning of chapter three through 5.1, this is the entirety of Paul's argument. He never mentions circumcision. The only thing he's actually arguing against is the law. And then in chapter five, might as well read the thing. Chapter 5, verse 2, Paul brings out this little hammer. After not mentioning um, Galatians, after not mentioning circumcision at all, he says this in verse 2, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again that every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So, he doesn't argue against circumcision. He argues against the law. But when he's coming out home to drive it into the Galatians, what does he say? If you're circumcised, you go back to the law. Now, at the very least, what does this imply about the symbolism of circumcision and what circumcision does? That baptism doesn't do. Does baptism connect you to the law? No. It's quite clear that Paul thinks that circumcision in some way, shape, or form connects you to the law. Specifically, Gentiles who do it. I don't think he has the same sort of conception for Jews that do it, but we don't have time to talk about why that is. But Gentiles, if they were to do it, it connects them to the law. At the very least, that destroys Calvin's argument that they symbolize the same thing. Because in Paul's mind, quite clearly, as a Gentile being circumcised, something in that symbolism attaches you directly to the law. And he says, you are under obligation. It's not, it's not like you might want to think about keeping the law, but the very fact that you circumcise yourself, Matt, you've got to keep the whole kit and caboodle now. You're cut off from Christ. You, you can't have any of the blessings of Christ. It's impossible to think that they actually symbolize the same things, and they have to symbolize different things if they have such different conclusions. Okay? So that's the first thing. Second second. Um, text we, we want to point to then is in the book of Romans. And it's one particular passage in the book of Romans, Romans uh, 4.17. This isn't going to be comprehensive in any sort of way, but we might as well look at these, uh, this important verse as well. Um, or 4.11, excuse me. 
In 411, Paul is talking about how um, um, Abraham was counted as righteous by his faith, which happens in Genesis 15. He then quotes David in talking about the forgiveness of sins. Blessed is the man who has forgiven his sins, whose lawless deeds are not counted against him. And then in verse 11, he, he, asks, um, he says this. He, meaning Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So the, the point is, the way in which God proceeded temporally by having uh, Genesis 15 occur before Genesis 17, by having Abraham believe and have it counted to him as righteousness and then giving him circumcision, that, that process was done with, with purpose behind it so that he would be the father of the circumcised and the uncircumcised through faith. The important part of this is what he says when he says that he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. What does that mean? What does it mean for something to be a seal of righteousness? When Paul uses the word seal um, like this, he oftentimes means it as an assurance of God of something that has not yet fully come to fruition. Okay? One of the best uh, uses of it that kind of illustrates this, although there's several, um, is in the book of Ephesians, in the very beginning of Ephesians chapter 1, which is not Colossians, nor is it Philippians. Um, in Philippians chapter 1, when he's talking about um, giving us the Spirit, um, in uh, verse 11, well, we should go down a little bit further. In him you also, verse 13, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the, the seal of the Holy Spirit, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Um, that is a, sort of a guarantee that you will make it, a guarantee that you will indeed inherit what is promised to you. So it's, a, it's something that... that um, assures us of, of something still to happen in the future that God has promised us would happen. So when you go back to Genesis 15, Abram looks up at the sky and God says, your, your dependents are going to, or your descendants, not your dependents, but maybe if he's filing taxes, um, are going to be as numerous as the stars of the sky. And, and so you're going to look up and he says, well, Abram believes, or Abram believes, God counts it as righteousness. And what Paul is saying is, while God counted it as righteousness, it, it was sort of like saying, I will add it to your ledger, but the payment hasn't been made yet. Okay? So it's a seal in the fact that God hasn't actually made that righteousness come true yet. Right? When does he make that righteousness come true? In Christ. This is what the whole third chapter of Romans was about. So when Paul talks about a seal of the righteousness, he means that God said, I'm going to count that as righteousness, but I'm going to make it real righteousness in a couple of centuries when I bring Jesus Christ. Okay? So we can then go back and kind of piece together what circumcision is doing. Circumcision has like a twofold promise going forward on two things that in the Old Testament have to be intertwined. And this is where Calvin goes wrong. One, it is a promise 
that one day God will make the accounted for righteousness true and real righteousness. That happens in Jesus Christ. That happens through the seed of which Ishmael was not accounted. And so you have this, this under the veil of circumcision, you have both physical protection, but then you have a smaller subgroup of people who must be circumcised to be in the group, yet nevertheless are a specific and we would call elect and chosen group throughout the history of Israel as Elijah. I've got 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal, the same sort of election doctrine that comes from Romans chapter 9. What God is saying is, I have chosen specifically out of the line of Israel some to be saved, and I have marked them as the seed. Okay? So there is a line of people that you can trace throughout Israel's history who are faithful to God. You have to be circumcised to be part of that group, but simply being circumcised doesn't mean you're part of that group. We know that because Ishmael circumcised. So why then give physical protection and the promise of righteousness in the same symbol? Because you need both of them to point to Jesus, right? And so what you have is the physical protection of people assuring that the son of Abraham, the son of David, would one day come from the line of Abraham as the seed. You need physical protection over the people to bring about the righteousness of Christ. Does that make sense? So the two are intertwined. To bring about the righteousness, to promise that Christ is, there will come one from your seed who will be righteous, I also have to promise that your seed's gonna make it there. And that's what circumcision is doing. It's looking forward and saying, I will protect you to bring forward the one who will make righteousness true. Okay? But once righteousness is true, you know what we don't need anymore? Physical lineage protection. We, we just don't need it anymore. And the main problem with Calvin is that Calvin confuses time. Circumcision is given before Christ. Baptism is given after Christ circumcision is is sort of like um how would we want to to say it? circumcision is hope that the promise it is a sign of the hope that the promises of god would come true baptism is a declaring that the promises are true and therefore they don't symbolize the same thing at all they're, they're, they're related, and we could, should clearly see they're related. They're related, but one's looking forward to Christ. One's looking backwards upon Christ. And so because of that, the two are, are similar, but they are incredibly distinct in what they're actually trying to signify. And so he can talk about like what they're doing is signifying mortification, and they're signifying this, but they're doing it coming from two completely different angles, and it's to confuse the two covenants altogether. Um, he's right to see it related back to the forgiveness of sins. He's right to see it related back to the promise made to Abram in, in Genesis 12, but he's wrong in how he gets there. Um, this brings us to the book of Colossians, um, Colossians 2, 11, and 12. This is the only place, by the way, in the entire New Testament, um, and, and Paedo-Baptists love this verse because this is the only passage in the entire New Testament where circumcision and baptism are actually related, which you think would be all over the place, yet nevertheless they're not. Um, Colossians 2, 11 through 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And here's what Calvin says about this. Certainly, if circumcision was a literal sign 
The same view must be taken of baptism, since in the second chapter to the Colossians, which we just read, the apostle makes the one to not be a whit more spiritual than the other, which is the strangest reading of Colossians I think that you could ever possibly come to, because he doesn't say that you've been circumcised. He says that you've been circumcised in a circumcision without hands. Now, I don't know if they're like using elbows to do the circumcision or what the deal is, but that's clearly meant to be a spiritual reality. And it's the spiritual reality that, that the initial doing of circumcision was meant to point towards, right? It was, it was meant to say, this is a declaration that you are the people of God, so live like it, which is why Moses continually says, circumcise your hearts. Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 30, circumcise your hearts. This is why Ezekiel says, you know, uh, or, or um, Ezekiel and Jeremiah both kind of promise the same thing, and they do it in different words, but the idea is, I will give you a heart of flesh, I will circumcise your hearts. The idea is, this reality should be true, but it's not true in you, Right? But God will one day do it. And so what Paul is saying is God has done it. And what's more, I think what Paul is saying is Jesus is your circumcision, right? It's an everlasting covenant, but it's everlasting because the one who is circumcised is circumcised forever. And now that covenant goes on forever in Jesus. And as we are in Jesus, we are included by his own circumcision in the promises to Abraham, right? So it's just a very thing that's weird. Calvin goes on to say this, what do these words mean but that the truth and completion of baptism is the truth and completion of circumcision since they represent one thing? I just, I, I don't, I don't understand that honestly. I just don't, he is too careful of an exegete to, to kind of get lost and stuff like that. So, um, circumcision is the trust that the promises of God will be true. Baptism is the declaration that the promises of God are indeed true. And I think that we are right then to affirm that baptism and circumcision do not symbolize the same thing. While they point to the same covenant, right, the new covenant is distinct. And this is what I want to point out about new covenant language, because we get confused by this. The new covenant is not like wholly and completely new, okay? The new covenant quite clearly in a number of New Covenant texts, New Testament texts, points back to one solitary covenant that God has made. It's the covenant of Abraham. This is the entirety of the book of Galatians. It's not that God has scrapped the old covenant and that he's made a new one, okay? He has scrapped a certain form of the old covenant, which was circumcision and the law, okay? Now, I didn't talk about how and why circumcision is related to the law. We can do that some other time. But if, if, if the declaration in Genesis 15, the covenant of 15 and the covenant of 17 were meant to say, this is how, at some level, I'm going to bring about the promise of Genesis 12, the new covenant is then saying, now, in Jesus, those means have come to an end because he has come. Now there is a new covenant in the blood of Jesus that connects you back to the blessings of the covenant of Abraham. The new covenant is not replacing Abraham's covenant. The new covenant is the way in which you get under the covenant of Abraham. Is one way of thinking about it. I don't think it's the only way of thinking about it, but it's one way of thinking about it. So um, that was all way too fast and probably a lot to drink in one little time. Any questions about, by the way, it's incredibly complicated. Like, the understanding of what happens, and the fact that Paul never actually deals with Genesis 17 and Galatians is a huge issue. Like, you would like him just to kind of deal with it, but he just never does. And 
it's a very strange thing. You would expect that this would be the first thing you go to and be like, hey, this is what circumcision means. This is why you're wrong. But he, he just draws directly to the law and he just talks about how the law is wrong. So, I, I think that, I mean, it, in his mind quite clearly, and it, what that tells me is that in Paul's mind, circumcision was related to the law and in his mind, everyone else bought that too. But this was not he didn't have to make that connection. He didn't have to argue for that connection because everyone assumed circumcision connects you to the law. And so this wasn't just an entrance right where you could then be free by grace. It connected you to the law, unlike baptism, which is clearly distinct. So, yeah, yeah. Any other questions or comments? So I think that that's an issue, and he mentions that. Like, he, he, he talks about the damnation of infants and, and the travesty of Anabaptists who, in his mind, is a travesty that would argue that infants who don't come to faith are then under Adam, and therefore they're damned. Um, maybe that isn't even what the Anabaptists said, but he, his point was, if they're not in the covenant, they're only under Adam, they're condemned. Um, I would like to mention a couple of things just in passing really quickly. That issue is a thorny issue and one that scripture does not directly address. And so I'm, um, I'm not afraid to, to talk about it, but I am afraid to draw really sharp conclusions on it. Um, I think that assuming that just because you circumcise children that they're, they're saved is just a weird phenomenon to me without faith. Like there, for us, if Calvin believes that circumcising them puts them into the covenant and they don't need to have faith, why would it be any different for Baptists when a child dies saying Jesus saved it by grace without faith? Like, we're not saying that, that he can't do it that way. We're saying that this is the normal track of things, right? Um, the other thing is, Baptists are sometimes thought of as um, these rabid individualists who don't see God blessing families, Right? As though the nature of God has somehow changed where he's not terribly concerned with blessing children of faithful parents, but he deals with everybody individually. That is, that is also not actually a necessary pull from Baptist thought. Right? We can see how God is still blessing families. We just don't think that that's the purpose of baptism. Right? God is, is incredibly kind to his people. And one of the kindnesses of God's people is allowing parents to watch their kids grow up and become believers themselves. Now, does that always happen? No, it doesn't always happen in, in Lutheran families and Presbyterian families and in Reformed families. It doesn't happen in any of those families. And they acknowledge that. Um, we acknowledge that too, but we are also fairly free to acknowledge that God does, by his own kindness, quite often call our children to faith. And that's a good thing. But that's simply not what baptism is there to show. Baptism isn't there to show God's kindness to families. God's baptism is there to show our connection to Jesus um, by faith. And so, um, again, I think it's just a, a mix-up of what baptism is meant to symbolize. But we don't want to say that, that God doesn't work that way. I think that we can affirm just as easily as Presbyterians and, and any Pado baptist that God does work that way. Um, but 
we just want to say that when they grow up, there's a necessity of having faith. And, and we, we truly believe that that is necessary for things. So, and yet, Mark, you had something that you were... You got a minute. You got a minute, brother. Let it fly. Um, I might not have heard of it under the same heading as you, and I think that it depends on what they, sometimes it's a charge that's leveled against people. Um, they call it supersessionism as well. Um, I don't know if that is precisely the same thing, or if it's saying that the church has replaced Judaism. Um, but again, I think that that's a matter of perspective. I can understand why Jews say that. I, I, I've read a number of, Daniel Boykin has written a, a pretty lengthy book about how um, Christians have just just taken things that belong to the Jews. Um, if you're a Jewish person, I can completely understand why you believe that. Christians would just say, no, no, they're ours by faith. Like, literally what Paul argues, right? So, so we're, Jewish people have said that before, so we're okay saying it. I don't know if, if the replacement theology, um, the two are, are quite clearly intertwined, um, we belong to Abraham, and the church was a Jewish thing. So it works both directions. The church did not separate out from Judaism. It's what a lot of people have called a third way. It wasn't Gentile completely, and it wasn't Jewish completely, um, but it was a third way, keeping Jewish monotheism directed in Jesus Christ, um, but at the same time, not Judaism. So, yeah, I don't know if that probably doesn't answer your question at all, but. Okay. Any others before our kids march back to Zion? All right. Well, I hope it was helpful and at least thought-provoking. Um, I hope you have more assurance. This is like a really important part of being a Baptist, um, it seems like I, I want you guys to all be assured. I, we have, uh, all of us are members in here. I, I want us to be assured of what we believe and what we say. And, and, um, and this is part of it. Uh, dealing with, with issues like this head on, I think, are, is always a really good thing. So let's pray, and uh, we, can be, we can be dismissed for a bit. Father God, I am thankful for um, your word. It is clarifying and good when we get to study it in detail. Um, and I am also thankful for Calvin. Um, I do think that he's wrong here, Father, and I, um, I pray that we are right in our handling and understanding of your word, not simply wanting to back up what we already believe, but um, being led to those beliefs by your word. Um, but this doesn't mean that we're not thankful for Calvin and the, the work that he has done. I'm grateful for him. I'm grateful for his clarity on many issues. Um, I pray, Father, that, um, that these are not issues that divide Christian from Christian, um, even as part of Calvin's problem is just that, that he saw this as the dividing line in, in Christian thought. Um, but rather, Father, that, that we would see this as, as a secondary issue, but at the same time an important one. Um, we are grateful 
for faith in Christ. We are grateful to be included under the covenant of Abraham uh, through faith in him, sealed upon us and symbolized in our baptism. Uh, We are grateful for the work that you have done in our lives and pray, Father, that we will uh, produce fruit for the kingdom as we go forward. We pray all this in his name. Amen.